Sure, we're going to turn to Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 9 through 11, just three verses uh, will be our focus this morning. Uh, I almost decided to finish out Titus today, but I hadn't properly warned you. I wanted to, you know, have some sort of ceremony uh, at the end of Titus uh, uh, and uh, actually, Titus three twelve through fifteen uh, really uh, cuts a different tone than verses nine through eleven. So, uh, after much prayer and consideration, decided to really focus our attention on Titus three nine through eleven. These are three verses, you know, by uh, by all uh, human accounts, uh, uh, would not be verses I love to preach on. Uh, some some people, maybe who are combative in nature, might just really enjoy these verses. Um, yet uh, we go verse by verse. We're trying to uh, unleash what God's word says, passage one passage after another, and uh, this is important meditation of focus for us. Uh, in Titus chapter three, Paul gives his final attention in the letter to how his coworker Titus should encourage believers on the island of Crete about those who are outside the church. Uh, if you remember, in verses 1 and 2, he, he zeroes in on two types of relationships that these believers had. In verse 1, he talked about governing authorities. And he explains to Titus that he must insist that believers submit to and obey their governing leaders. That that's their normal heart posture toward governing leaders. And And thus, they'll be able to perform the good works in their culture and society that God calls them to. Uh, Then in verse 2, he encourages them to also be kind and to show perfect courtesy toward every person, all outsiders. And, um, you know, he just kind of gives us that one verse and then moves along as well. So, you have these responsibilities to governing leaders and then everyone else. Now, that might leave the... Uh, Cretan believers with the question, uh, how is that possible? I mean, do you, Paul, do you really know how bad our governing leaders are? Do you really know how bad outsiders can be? And that's why in verse 3, I think he reminds them of their own heritage. Um, in verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So Paul connects these ideas with reminding the Cretan believers what they once were. Listen, if you have a hard time submitting to some foolish person in governing authorities, you need to remember you were yourself a fool. If you have a hard time um, showing kindness and generosity toward People who seem to be enslaved by passions and pleasures that uh, do not promote Christ. You need to understand that's the way you were. But God saved us. And uh, last week we were able to focus in on uh, how he saved us. And just look at salvation from all kinds of different angles. And to know it was nothing of our own doing. God saved us. And so um, these verses, verses 1 through 8, I think are very helpful for how the church would relate to outsiders. Now, in verses 9 through 11, there's a transition that occurs, and Paul will put uh, the topic of decisive or divisive topics and divisive people before Titus himself. 
right, as we come to verses 9 through 11, Paul turns to something else that isn't profitable and excellent. I want to show you one thing about the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. Look at the end of verse 8. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Keyword profitable here. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So the mention of functioning in a way that's kind and submissive to people in the culture and how that's profitable for every person, uh, brings Paul to bring up a subject, or leads Paul to bring up a subject, of something that is unprofitable and utterly useless, that Titus himself must avoid. Paul gives Titus uh, himself important instructions about how to deal with decisive subjects and peoples in the church. Now, what I'd ask you to do today as we go through this sermon is I would ask you to pay close attention as I try to unfold verses 9 through 11 for us. And then at the end, I'm going to try to draw or make two applications for us as a church. Okay, So we're going to try to understand what it means first uh, with occasional applications mixed in. But then at the end, I'm going to really ask you to, to prayerfully consider two things. And so let's uh, work through this text to see how Titus should treat divisive issues in people. Uh, divisive issues would be verse 9, divisive, divisive people, verses 10, 11. You can see that at the beginning of verse 10, it says, uh, as for a person. So verse 9, he's talking about divisive topics or issues, and then verses 10, 11, divisive people. So it starts with divisive issues in verse 9. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Here Paul describes how and why to respond to divisive topics in the church. And again, it's my, uh, I, know, I know this letter is written as personal correspondence from Paul to Titus. It's my belief that verse 9 is particularly for Titus as a co-worker of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he should do. This is how he should respond. And to make things abundantly clear for Titus, Paul gives him one command, one word. Uh, it's reflected in most translations with the, the word avoid. Okay, The New American Standard uses the word shun. Okay, uh, Titus is to avoid, in verse 9, certain things. He is literally, uh, could be translated, to stand against. Or, in some Septuagint usage, it's to march around. He is to turn around for the purpose of avoiding some things. Here Paul tells Titus that he should turn his back on some things and walk away from them and have nothing to do with them. Now, he tells him what they should avoid with four descriptions. First, foolish controversies or foolish debates. The word for controversies here includes questions or investigations into small details. Now, we live in a culture and a place where we love hot topics of debate. Okay, Some of us kind of live for those moments. And talking through hot topics can be helpful, especially if those topics are identified in Scripture as being important. But when Paul attaches the word foolish 
to the first part of this debate or controversies, it's clear that he does not want Titus to have anything to do with unnecessary arguments into insignificant things. I think it seems to me that from the very beginning of the church, there have always been people who spend countless hours arguing over unimportant things. And so, uh, as a leader of the churches in Crete, Titus is not supposed to get sucked into these things. Okay, Avoid. Go far away from foolish debates. Then, and uh, you know, at this point we're trying to figure out, well, what kind of controversy is going on here? Uh, I think in an effort to make it even clearer to Titus, and perhaps to us, what he should avoid, you see the next word. Genealogies. Okay, now, we're far removed from debates about genealogies, at least I hope so. I haven't heard that as a pastor, um, if, you know. But, but what, what is this? What is wrong with genealogies? Okay, um, is this some sort of condemnation of genealogy.com or stuff like that? Some of you, I think, enjoy tracing your lineage. Is there something inherently wrong with this? Or, Well, I think we need to dig in a bit here to understand a little bit more of what he's doing. In the scripture, there are many important genealogies which connect the Jewish people to their forefathers, to Moses, to Abraham, to Adam and, and Eve, and, and those aren't inherently wrong. Those portions of scripture are helpful. Yet I think there was something about genealogies for Jewish people in the first century that could be a distraction and could be a problem. Okay, There were some who evidently obsessed over endless genealogies and myths. Now this Greek word for genealogy is only used in one other place in the New Testament. It's used in the pastoral epistles. It's used in 1 Timothy. And there Paul's telling him, don't get sucked into these debates over Jewish myths and endless genealogies. Paul was concerned that some people were obsessively interested in genealogies for the wrong reasons. Okay, now, uh, one year of my life uh, was spent studying to write a chapter of my dissertation that I never wrote. And I've always wondered why God would have me do that. Uh, but now I know it's for you, right, at this very moment on genealogies. For a year of my life, I studied early Jewish midrash, tiny attic midrash. Uh, you say, I have no idea what midrash is. It's not a disease or something like that, okay? It's, it's uh, Jewish commentaries on the scripture. And the way these are set up are typically uh, rabbis go back and forth giving interpretations of the first five books of the Bible, the law. Okay, and their interpretations are quite interesting. Often bizarre. Uh, very creative eisegesis is going on in some cases. And they're attracted to all sorts of different things. They're attracted to how many times a, a word is used. For instance, I remember reading in the early Jewish works about the fact that the cloud that led the children of Israel is mentioned nine times in Scripture, and there were just all these explanations on why the number nine was important. 
but if you really want to uh, get some interesting speculative exegesis, you could go to the genealogies in Genesis and Numbers and their explanations. Now, when we come to the genealogies, you know, so-and-so begot so-and-so and so on. We take it for what it is. It's, it's telling us who fathered who and how they're related to each other. But for some of the early Jewish rabbis, it was an, an opportunity to demonstrate their creativity and their their ability to speculate and make connections that sometimes should never be made. When it comes to the genealogies in Genesis and Numbers, for instance, they interject all sorts of bizarre speculation. And the different schools of the rabbis spent more time discussing these speculative fantasies than they did discussing and practicing things related to godliness or good works. And so Paul tells Titus this, he says, don't get sucked into this about genealogies. Uh, Of course, there's not a fascination for genealogies in Jewish myths in the contemporary church. There are, however, some who would obsess over minor exegetical disputes, sometimes writing whole books and developing loyal followers uh, over different, uh, like, secret codes or something that they would find in the Bible. A good example of this is a book that was written in the late 1990s called The Bible Code. I'm not recommending it to you. One of the first uh, problems you can find with the book is the author. The author's not a theologian, he's a journalist. And in this best-selling book, you imagine that best-selling book? He basically argues that if you... Uh, if you pay attention to different Hebrew letters in the Old Testament, you keep uh, equal distance from each other. I forget what the gap is, whether it's 10 or 11 letters or something. And you just like circle every 10th or 11th letter. And then you read them backwards, you will find a special message <laughs> that God intended for you. Okay? Um, uh, let me give you a quick, easy rule about biblical interpretation. If, if someone's interpretation of Scripture requires uh, advanced analytics or calculus, you probably know it's wrong. <laughs> or if what you're doing, you're looking at it, and, and you, you kind of lay it out in front of you, and you're doing this method or whatever, if it looks like an advanced, like a word search, you're like looking for the key letters, and you're like circling and drawing things, that's probably wrong as well. Such theories often come from people who are obsessed with fleshly things, like those who argue about Jewish myths and genealogies. I love the text we read this morning, Philippians chapter 3. Instead of glorying in fleshly things, it'd be far better for us to glory in Jesus Christ. These speculative ways of looking at Scripture. Scripture is exciting and important enough. We need to come up with some secret code for this. And so Paul tells Titus, don't get sucked into these things. Don't get into these foolish debates. Don't get into arguments about genealogies. Then he says, number three, don't uh, also, uh, he says, also avoid dissensions. And I think when he comes here, he's coming to the effect of these debates and what they're having. The word dissensions is a small word that could be translated strife. It speaks of internal contention that we feel in our soul. The effect of these arguments and foolish controversies and genealogies was having was strife in the church. 
One of the ways you can tell that an argument you're engaging in is wrong is its effect upon everyone around you. Just creating more and more and more strife, it's something we should avoid. Evidently, Paul must have observed chaos in some of the churches that he had been planting and partnering with, chaos that started from unnecessary arguments. And so he says, avoid dissensions. And then finally, he tells Titus, avoid quarrels about the law. These disputes did not just lead to internal strife, but external quarreling or fighting. Again, it's often a sign that the issues we're debating are wrong and unnecessary if it leads to quarreling and fighting in the churches of God. Now, the reference to the law here helps us understand more fully that this was some sort of Jewish false teaching that he's dealing with, quarrels over or about the law of Moses. Here it seems that some Jewish false teachers were causing fragmentation in the churches of Crete. And so Paul uh, returns to the subject. If you remember, he had dealt with us a little bit before. What we have in chapter 3 is just very quick, you know, verse 9, 10, 11. And it leaves us with a lot of questions, quarrels about the law. What exactly does that mean? But if you remember back in chapter 1, he'd given us a little bit more instruction about this. So I just want to read this for you. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. And then I'll read through verse 15 as a reminder the sort of false teaching that Titus is facing, that Paul ex- expects Titus to stand against. Verse 10, for there are many, okay, there are many of these people who are insubordinate, they're rebellious, they're empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Okay, uh, In chapter 3 is quarrels over the law here, they're of the Jewish party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. To review in chapter 1 here, Paul says that, that these many Jewish influencers must be silenced and sharply rebuked by Titus. They are rebellious. They are independent agents unwilling to submit to any leadership that God has placed in the church. They are empty talkers. These sort of people like to talk about nothing. Let's go on and on talking about nothing. They're deceivers destroying whole house churches. They're also just like their culture, culture following after their own brute instincts like an animal. Finally, says they're self-deceived and totally incapable of producing anything good. As we come to the final chapter, we see then perhaps what they love to talk about. They quarreled over proper interpretations of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And as a leader in the churches in Crete, Titus must not participate in these things. He should avoid these issues. He should also, as best as he can, see to it that the churches that he leads steer clear of these sort of debates and contentions 
as well. Okay, that's how Titus should respond. So go back to verse 9. This is directly to him. Avoid these things. And, and then at the end of the verse, Paul does not leave him without a reason for behaving this way. You, know, you see those sort of debates? Turn around. Walk away. Don't get involved in these things. And the reason is because they're useless and empty. Completely unprofitable. That's how Titus should respond to divisive issues. Okay? Uh, then, in verses 10-11, he talks about what he should do with divisive people. Okay, because division does not always just uh, involve debates and arguments. It sometimes, many times, perhaps all times, involves people. Look at verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Here Paul describes these problematic people, I think, in four ways. First, the person that Paul warns Titus about is one who stirs up division. Could actually be translated, probably better translated, a divisive person. He's not talking about the process or the act of stirring up division. He's, he's giving you a description of the person themselves. They are divisive. His warning here is about someone who keeps bringing up issues in an effort to cause more and more people to faction away from the church. And men and women, sometimes this is true. Again, not my favorite topic to speak on. And it may be that these people who are divisive are well-meaning and earnest, but they're wrong. They're divisive. So Paul explains Titus's responsibility toward the divisive person as first warning him or her two times. Now, Titus 3 here might fit within the scheme or the pattern that Jesus gives in Matthew 18. You remember this? Different levels of confrontation. But it doesn't appear that that necessarily is the case. He, he might have something a little bit different in mind. Here there's no mention of Titus, tell it to the whole church. That could be assumed in this passage, but it is not stated. Instead, Titus is told first that he is to warn divisive people on two occasions. They must be confronted with their sin twice. The word for warn here means to reason with them from Scripture, to instill a sense in them that their behavior is wrong, it's not appropriate, doesn't come in line with the Scripture. So they have no sense themselves that what they're doing is wrong, but Titus is supposed to instill a sense in them that this is wrong or inappropriate behavior. Then, if they continue in this act, then he's supposed to have nothing to do with them. Which means to reject or avoid them. I think it speaks of a refusal for fellowship 
with them. Okay, now I, I really wish I knew a little bit more about everything that's going on in Crete and exactly what Titus is dealing with here as an apostolic co-laborer with Paul. When I was reading through his text, I, I couldn't help but think, well, maybe this is just like, you know, something that's unique to the island of Crete or something. But then I started reading in the rest of the pastorals. Okay. What I want to encourage you to do is just read with me a few passages. We'll start in 1 Timothy. So back up to 1 Timothy. And here's some of the same language he's using with Timothy. Now, when Paul writes 1 Timothy, uh, Timothy is in Ephesus and he's functioning as the leader over the churches of Ephesus. Remember, Titus is in Crete. But they're written at around the same time. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 1 Timothy 1, 3 and 4. It says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Okay, so he's leaving Timothy there and he says, I want you to charge these people not to devote themselves to these sort of things, but instead to stewardship from God that is by faith. Go to chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. 1 Timothy 4, 6 and 7. If you put these things before the brothers, you are a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. Okay, so he's telling Timothy, don't get sucked into irreverent, silly myths. There's something far more important for you as a man of God to pursue. And what is it in this text? Godliness. Listen, we all have different church backgrounds and experiences. And perhaps we've seen divisive issues in, 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 in or people in the church. And we've all seen different pastors lead their way through those issues. Okay? One of the ways to pray for your church leadership would be that they would not get sucked into things that distract, to irreverent, silly sort of myths or... Uh, dissensions or arguments about unimportant things, but wouldn't it be better to pray for them to actually pursue after godliness? Go to First Corinthians chapter, or First uh, Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I want you to see it again. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. 
But here again, you can see some of the same language, the same call to Timothy to be confronting people who would distract people in all these ways and produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions. Listen also to 2 Timothy. Flip over to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. As Paul writes the three pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, letters especially addressed to other co-laborers in the gospel. He writes these things near the end of his life. 2 Timothy might be the last book that Paul ever wrote. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 14 through 17, you can see his counsel to Timothy regarding his life. Look at verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker that has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I love this. Like, Don't quarrel about words, but focus on the word of truth. Verse 16. But avoid, Timothy, avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. We'll just stop there. I think Paul knew how distracting and endless and endless dealing with divisive people can be. So he tells Titus, stop. After warning them twice, have nothing more to do with them. I think from these other pastoral epistles, he would say, instead, train yourself and discipline yourself to pursue godliness and good works. So the first characteristic of the people back in Titus that, uh, that uh, Titus is supposed to warn and then have nothing to do with is they stir up divisions. Uh, then, if you go back to Titus, we'll, we'll close out this passage before we, we draw application for our own church here. He describes them in three other ways, which I think also serve as reasons why have, having nothing to do with them is justifiable. And we'll go quickly through these. Titus 3, verse 10, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and twice of nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is, okay, here are the other descriptions, warped and sinful. And I think this is important in our text because it helps anyone trying to follow Titus's example to make sure that the area of Contention is not just personal, right? Okay, and this is where some of us have observed that maybe there are occasions where a pastor, a group of pastors lead a church in which they separate from someone who simply disagrees with them in an area. Here there are further descriptions of these people. They're not only divisive, causing and sowing discord, they are warped and they are sinful. Uh, the word warped means off track or they've turned aside. Uh, one commentary used the example of a musical instrument that's off key, always sounding awful and, and needing to be corrected because it's always playing the wrong notes. Divisive people are warped. They're off key and sinful. And then finally, uh, he describes them as being self-condemned. 
This is someone then whose mouth and words and constant arguments testify against themselves. Now, no doubt this would be difficult for Titus to, to do uh, as he leaves the churches of Crete, but uh, he must warn divisive people and then have nothing more to do with them because of the nature of what their life leads to. Now, I promised some concluding applications, and I'll give them to you now at this point. So if you're taking notes, you can just write these things down and pray for them and think about them this week. I, I would ask you to respond to this text uh, in two ways. First, uh, would you pray that I and other church leaders would have wisdom and courage to deal with divisive people appropriately? And every word of that is important. Okay, so I'll repeat it. Would you pray that I and other church leaders would have wisdom and courage to deal with divisive people appropriately? Pray that we don't censor people just because they disagree with us. And other, basically, that they indeed do fit this passage. Pray that we never use this passage. Pray that I never use this passage in a way to censor someone who doesn't fit. I don't want to stand before the Lord and say, well, you know, God, you told Titus, so I just applied it. You know, God, I, I warned them twice. And then I just, I didn't have anything else to do with them. I don't want to hear God tell me someday, yeah, but that person wasn't warped and sinful. They weren't divisive. You've misapplied it. Pray that that never happens here. And then secondly, would you commit to avoid divisive arguments about insignificant issues? Many churches throughout the history of Christianity, have suffered fragmentation over unnecessary arguments over insignificant things? Would you commit to walk away from, avoid divisive arguments about insignificant issues? And it'll be our prayer that as you you pray those things for your church leadership, and as you pray those things regarding yourself, that God would help us and protect us, um, and allow us to be a church that boasts in Jesus Christ, not in any human personality, not in any new conceived exegetical secret, but who boasts in the Scripture and in our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Paul's counsel to Titus. How glorious it is to see this church planter, missionary, give strategic advice to Titus. Not just strategic, but inspired advice to Titus about how to deal with divisive issues and divisive people. Uh, Lord, I, I would pray for our church, I would pray for our church leadership that we would never, never be guilty of censoring someone simply because they disagree with us. 
But then, Lord, give us wisdom and courage to follow Titus' example when necessary. Lord, give us wisdom to know when this sort of approach is necessary to, after one warning and after two warnings, have nothing more to do with a person. Lord, we're thankful for this passage because in ourselves we would never really look to do this. But we know that the devastation that can come from a person who sows discord, it can damage entire households. It can destroy people and their walk with you. So give us wisdom. Give us courage. Then to my brothers and sisters here, I pray that you might uh, help them be so drawn to Jesus and what he has done and the glories of the gospel that it would, it would uh, have all their attention. I pray that you'd protect us from divisive topics that would get us off-centered. Keep us from understanding and knowing your word. Lord, we're grateful for this time together around your word, and we pray that you, through the Spirit, would use this word to change our church. In Jesus' name, amen.